This morning, I want to talk to you about the Garden of God, or as most people know it, the Garden of Eden. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time over these next several weeks in Scripture. So, you know, I, I like to always have a physical Bible with me because it's important to just look at the Scriptures and go through it. And if you have it in paper form or electronic form, I encourage you to look at it because I really do want to talk about the Garden of Eden because it plays a very important part in the story of God. And so the first question that I had to ask as I was reading Genesis 2 is, what is the purpose of Eden? What really is the purpose of the garden? It's almost like a cruel story if you think about it. Here God creates this most beautiful place and a great opportunity for people and then he kicks them out. And no longer are they allowed to come back. But this isn't the story that God intended for us. There is something beautiful about the Garden of Eden. Matter of fact, the very first book of the Bible talks about the Garden. And the very last book of the Bible talks about the restoration of that Garden. So this, this is a very important thing to the Lord. But I had to ask myself, what is the purpose of it? I understand the purpose of Genesis 1. Matter of fact, I wrote a book about it. The purpose of Genesis 1. And I understand why we have Genesis chapter 3. The fall, where Adam and Eve sinned and they, they did the wrong choice and, and all of a sudden the results of that. I understand that, but why the garden? Why is it such an important place? And, and then the question is, is it a real place? Was it a real place? Well, obviously it, it was, it is, uh, because we know that the Bible talks about it. And we know that the Bible speaks about things that are true. But it plays a very important part. Because if you would study the book of Genesis, you would realize that the first 11 chapters are very unique on setting up why this world is the way it is. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are there to give us an understanding of why this world is the way it is. Why it's so evil. Why it's so wicked. How come God doesn't intervene when we pray? How come God doesn't stop the bad things from happening? How come God doesn't just inject himself and stop the chaos and the disorder and the rebellions that happen? Genesis 1 through 11 sets that up for us. And it starts with the garden. It's the foundation of how God will restore what he desires for us. Like I said, it's the first book of the Bible that talks about the garden. And the last book of the Bible and the last chapter of the Bible where God restores the garden. But before we jump into Genesis 2, and I ask you to turn there because we're going to spend some time in there. We're going to be hopping around in Scripture, so, but Genesis 2 is the main text. But before we get into Genesis 2, we've got to take a closer look at creation. Because the, the, the point is, when was the Garden of Eden created? When was this garden created? Well, let's... If you look in Genesis or Exodus 20, and you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 20, God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And the Bible says in Exodus 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words. So God himself is arriving on the scene with Moses, and he's there with the, the, the tablets. 
And uh, Moses is ready to receive from the Lord. And the Bible says that God spoke all these things. And he's going to speak the Ten Commandments. And he came to verse 11. It says, and this is God still speaking. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Clearly, the Bible teaches a six-day creation and the seventh day he rested. The Bible teaches this. God himself says that he did everything, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and then rested on the seventh day. So there is no other pattern in Scripture to go by. We believe that there is a seven-day week, six days of creation, the seventh day he rested or he ceased from doing his work. This is important. Because I want us to look, and, and you're real close to it, Genesis 1. If you want to turn there, Genesis 1.26, it says this. Then the Lord said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and over the wild animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So we can, according to scripture, understand that on day six, God created people. And then verse 31 says, God saw that all that he made, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So according to the Bible, on the sixth day, the day before the seventh, the day before the, the resting, the day before he stopped, on the sixth day, he created male and female. And this is important. And I'll explain this as we go. But the Bible tells us that everything was done in six days. That's why Jesus said this. In Matthew 19, he was asked by the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replied in 19.4, haven't you read that at the, beginning of, at the beginning the creator made them male and female? Jesus recognized that at the very beginning, on day six, God created male and female. He didn't say after millions of years, after billions of years. He said that on day six, God created male and female at the beginning. Jesus is telling us this because he believes that it was on day six. Why? Because that's what Genesis tells us. Not on day eight, not on week 12, but day six. Jesus believed the book of Genesis because he knows about the book of Genesis because he was an eyewitness to the book of Genesis. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was there at the beginning, with God in the beginning. Through him, all things, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. Jesus was there. So Jesus being there at the beginning, at creation, along with the Father and the Spirit of God, all of them there, the Trinity was present, and Jesus knows what happens. He knows that God is going to do these things, and on day six, they were created. Jesus was there. Adam and Eve were created on day six. Now, Genesis 2. In verse 2, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had done, he had been doing, so that on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. This is important because there is a closure to chapter 1. And I know that in our Bibles we say, well, no, the closure has got to be the end of chapter 1. Well, the Bible was written without 
chapters and verses. Those didn't come around till thousands of years after the Bible, the text was written. It's just one big book. There's no chapters and verses. And so technically, the story of creation goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3. And so I'm setting up this story here because I think it's important to realize that Adam and Eve were created on day six. According to the Bible, there's no other pattern that we have. It is day six that Adam and Eve were created. Then comes verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. This is a new section, a new transition in the story. This is a break in the text. Now, I know a lot of you aren't privy to the Hebrew language as I am. (laughs) That was the worst class I took. I I took several classes in Hebrew and Old Testament theology. Man, those things, that was tough. The only thing I got out of it is I learned English better. My dad still didn't understand that. He goes, how do you go to a Hebrew language class and learn English better? I said, I don't know. I don't know. But there is a text break. There is a transition in the story. And the way we know this is because of the word toledot. It's the word toledot. It means an account or a written record of a story. A, a record that is going to be presented. It forms a natural selection break. This happens in in Genesis 2-4 where all of a sudden there's a break from the creation story. The story is complete. Now they're going to give you a written record of the account of the Garden of Eden and the fall of mankind. And then a few chapters later in chapter 5 verse 1 there's another Toledot. There's another written record of of Adam and his family. And then in chapter 6 verse 9 there's another break with Noah and his family. Then in chapter 10 verse 1 there's a break with the table of nations. The story like the Tower of Babel and the the nations being spread out. And then in chapter 11 verse 27 there's a break with Terah the father of Abraham and so on. So Genesis actually has a sectional break, a, a outline if you will of the text. And here, chapter 1 is dealing with the creation story, and then the Toledot arrives. Now, like I said, you don't, you don't have to be privileged and know how to read Hebrew in order to understand that there's a break. Let me give you an example of some English Bibles. Um, one of the new versions that I'm re- reading is the New American Standard Bible um, 2020 version. I, I read the 95 version, but the 2020 version just came out a couple years ago, so I'm enjoying that. That's what I use for my devotional time. And this is what it says, verse 2, or verse 4, chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord had made the earth and heaven. This is from the King James Version. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the English Standard Version, the ESV, these are the generations of heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord had made the earth and the heavens. All of them are very similar. And matter of fact, I'll even give you an example from a translation that I don't like, the Amplified Bible. I, I mean, I just, I mean, some people love the Amplified, I just don't like the Amplified Bible. You know, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Yeah, everyone loves that one for devotional time, right? All right, good. Got my Bible done reading. Jesus wept. The Amplified Bible's got like 20 words in there. 
No, I'm joking. I don't know. But it, the Amplified Bible was an English translation based off English text, and it's just trying to amplify the meaning of it. And I don't really care for that particular as being a student of the Word of God. A lot of people enjoy it, but I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible. I don't mean to offend anyone. But this is what it says. This is the history of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Out of versions of the Bible that I don't like and versions of the Bible that are very literal and versions of the Bible that are very down the road, middle down the road, all of them say one thing, when they were created. You see, there is something in the text that is telling us that this is something that has already happened. It's something of the past. It's given an account of something, of a record that has already been written, a story that's already been done. And this is the account of something when they were created. It's a past event. When did this happen? When did the Garden of Eden take place? It has to be on day six. This is why I went through all of the, 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 the story of Exodus and, and God saying that he created everything in six days and Jesus knowing that it was in the beginning that he created male and female. And I went through day six uh, extensively so that you would understand that the Garden of Eden is taking place on day six. It's not a new day. It's not a different day. Some people say that, that Genesis 2 is a different part of the story. Well, wait a minute. I don't think so. Here's the creation story. Day one, God created light. Day two, God created the firmament and he separated the waters from below from the waters above. Day three, he created the seas and the land and the plants and the trees. Remember that. On day three, he created the sea, the land, the plants, and the trees. On day four, he created the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he created halibut. He created fish. He created birds. And on day six, he created animals. And then... He created male and female, and on day seven, he rested. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2 at this new break, verse 4. This is the account of heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet set rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils this breath of life, and that man became a living being. Once again, verse 4 is letting us know of something that's already happened. But you'll start to see that things don't make sense if you think that this is something separate than day 6. Because verse 5 tells us that there was no shrubs or plants that yet appeared on earth. Wait a minute. Genesis 1 clearly tells us that on day 3, Genesis 1 verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants, seed bearing according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. So in Genesis 1, it tells us there's trees and plants on day 3, but in Genesis 2, it says that there's no shrubs, there's no plants on this land, on this earth. So what is it talking about? Well, if you read the NIV Bible, or maybe your Bibles will sometimes have little markers next to the word. And if you look at the NIV Bible, and you see that there's a little note next to the word earth, where the Bible says that there was no shrubs had yet appeared on the earth. 
That little marker, if you look down at the very bottom, will sometimes give you a little footnote. It says, could be translated as land. Not earth as the whole planet that we would think of, but as land, as a piece of land, as a plot of ground. Almost like a garden. So here the Bible's telling us that there, is, there was no shrubs or trees on this land. Now, technically, you could use the word earth because that's what it is, right? It's earth, it's dirt, it's ground. But it also could be translated as land. And I think that the land that is being talked about is the garden. Because the Bible says for two reasons there was no, one, there was no garden. For two reasons. That there was no rain that yet came and there was no one to work the ground. What, had, what happened to Adam? Adam was created on day six. Adam was there. He was created. And the Bible tells us that when he created this man, he put him in the garden. So it had to be day six. Verse six tells us that God will water the land himself, that he will cause springs to come up. God took care of the first reason why this land was bare, but the second reason was that God created Adam, breathed life into him, and now became a living person. And God now took care of the second reason why there was no garden. Because now he has someone to take care of it. And verse 8 says, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So the Bible is very descriptive in what it's trying to do. The problem is, is if we don't see the markers, if we don't see the clues that this is a story that's already happened, we, we just like, how does this work? Because Genesis tells us, one, that there was plants and trees on the earth, but yet chapter 2 tells us that there's no shrubs or plants on the earth. But if you realize and you look at the text and just analyze it, you'll see that this story makes sense. We're talking about day six. On day six, God created the animals. And then on day six, he there's trees and plants everywhere else. But there's this piece of land that has nothing. There's no, there's no one to water the garden. There's no one to take care of it. And there's no one to work it. So God says, okay. I'm going to provide streams for it. I'm going to provide the ability for it to grow. And I'm going to provide the man and the woman to take care of it. And that's why it says that he created them. And if you read ahead in the story, you realize that it's Adam and it's Eve. And then it comes to verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the, two, were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right in the middle of this beautiful garden were two trees. Two trees. So the first question is, are they literal trees? Are they literal trees? Well, I believe, yes, they are. You Remember that Genesis is a historical document. It's not... It's not a book that's giving us allegories or, or, or trying to paint pictures with words. It's not a poetry book. It's not, you know, using the poetic language in order to describe something. It is simply telling us a record of what happened. Genesis is a history book. That's it. It's God's history. It's his story of what happened. 
And so Genesis tells us that there are two trees right in the middle of the garden. So are they literal trees? Yes, they are literal trees. In the middle of the garden are these two trees. And like the rest of the trees in the garden, these two trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Eve knew this because in chapter 3 it says that when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. So these trees had fruit on it. And this fruit contained the ability of life and the knowledge of good and evil. This question begins, or this picture begins to paint questions in my mind. How can a tree possess the ability for long life, eternal life? How can this tree possess qualities of knowing good and evil? Why these trees? The tree of knowledge, and I'm going to talk about this one today, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is only mentioned twice in the Bible. Contrary to the tree of life, which is mentioned in Genesis, also referenced in poetic words in Psalm and Proverbs, and is the lastly mentioned in Revelation 22. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, what is this tree? Now, there are many theories about this tree. Some believe that this tree had a connection with some type of knowledge about sexuality. And the reason why they say this is because when Adam and Eve, it says in verse 25 later in chapter 2, Adam and Eve and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame. They just, they didn't know any better. This is just the way it was. But once they sinned and they ate from the tree, what was the first thing they did? They went, according to Genesis 3, 7, their eyes of them were both open and they realized they were naked, so they sewn thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So some people think that it's tied to some type of sexual knowledge that all of a sudden, you know, they, they disobeyed God, they realized that the, they were naked and they covered themselves. But this theory, though, and this is a leading theory, doesn't really hold up because... Just being very honest, sexuality was a part of God's plan for people. What did he say in chapter 1, verse 28? God blessed them, people, man and wife, Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. How do you increase in number? I'm just saying, God, they were going to figure it out real quickly, you know? How do you increase the number? Let's Google this. What? You know, <laughs> they were going to figure it out. So I don't think that this knowledge was just about a, a sexual nature. But there was something unique about this tree because this tree caused them to realize that they felt shame because they knew about good and evil. Some people will argue that the reason why this tree, the, the, the whole point of this tree was uh, the consequences of obeying or disobeying God's commands. That man would have only known what was good if he never ate from this tree. That we would only know good. Kind of like being naive of things that are wrong. We just, we just don't know any better. So they look at this tree as an opportunity rather than the fruit possessing a quality that would help them know good and evil. The only problem with this line of thought is this, though, is that these, these fruit 
that comes from the tree has the ability, has the responsibility, has the, the weight of experiencing death. That partaking of this tree, death would be introduced to Adam and Eve. And later on when we talk about the fall, we'll get into it a little bit more. But Genesis 3 says, by the sweat, this is God's punishment towards Adam. He says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat the food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. From dust you are and to dust you will return. So, so eating this fruit brought death into his life. Knowing good and evil brought death into his life. That's a pretty big thing. You know, it's not like there's a bunch of warning stickers on this tree saying, if you eat this, you will die. But God clearly made this tree in the middle. And why put it in the middle? Why put it right there? Why didn't he just tuck it away on Australia? Because there was no boats yet. Couldn't even get to it. Why put it right in the middle? And then do you notice what happens once they do eat from this tree? The Bible says in 3.22, And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and he must not allow to be reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What is it about this tree? First thing that God says is that when he ate from this tree, that they would not live forever. I don't think it's just about being naive or being too innocent to figure it out. You know, you know when our kids are little babies, you know, they would sit in mom's arm and, and, um, and she would, you know, at the time wear these nice big earrings. And what would that little baby do? You know, and reach out and grab that earring and pull. And my wife would say, no, 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 no. And that baby would read again and no, 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 no. And baby, I told you no, pop, 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 pop. Well, the baby doesn't know, and she wasn't that violent. That's why I don't wear earrings. I would have been that violent, but, but, she, but the baby doesn't know. The baby's innocent. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy 139 says that your children who do not yet know good from bad, there's, there's a stage in our life where we're just not aware of what's right or wrong, good or evil. But yet, when our kids do things without being aware, we don't condemn them to death. Because they're just kids. So what is it about this tree? Why would God create this tree right in the middle? And remember that God didn't create a child. He created a full, fully mature adult male who had the ability to go out and to be fruitful and multiply. He contained the ability to do that. So he didn't create a child. He created a man. So what was this tree of knowledge of good and evil? Well, what happened? Sometimes the way to best understand the tree of knowledge of good and evil is to look at the results of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And verse 22 says that the man, in chapter 3, the man who has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not allow to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the first thing that happened is God said, the man has now become like one of us. The man has now become like one of us. And, and just think about this for a minute. The Bible clearly tells us 
that in Genesis chapter 1, that we were made in the image and the likeness of God. And then all of a sudden they eat from this tree of knowledge, good and evil, and God says, now he has become like one of us. Who's God talking to? Some people think that, you know, when this language is written in Genesis, it's talking about the Trinity, but I don't believe it is. We know that Jesus was there, but we don't know that until John comes around and tells us that Jesus was there. So if you're reading this as an Old Testament, in an Old Testament setting, we don't understand that Jesus, the Son of God, will eventually come and he was a part of creation. We don't understand that. We just know that God created the heavens and the Spirit of God was over the waters. So who is God talking to? He has become like one of us. We were made in the image of God, but all of a sudden here, because they ate from this tree of knowledge of good and evil, God says you become like one of us. Who is us? This term for God in Hebrew is Elohim. And it's used to describe God. But it is also used to describe many other things than just God. It's used to describe angels. It's used to describe judges and ghosts and heavenly beings. It's a very generic word. Now, some people will get offended when they hear about this. You know, what do you mean, Elohim? That's God. Well, it's just a classification of a spiritual being. And Jesus tells us this in John 4, that, Jesus, or that God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit. Why? Because God is spirit. He's a spiritual being. But in English, when we hear God, we assume that it is always tied to our Heavenly Father, the one that we think about as God. But in Hebrew, when you would write Elohim, it wasn't always talking about God Almighty. It would be talking about other things, other spiritual entities. And how do we determine how to translate that word? It's simply by the context of the story. Let me give you an example. Samuel was... was was a great prophet and he he told Paul or Saul that his kingdom would be lost because he disobeyed God and so Saul is just conflicted he doesn't know what's going on and so Samuel dies and now he feels like he's abandoned he doesn't know doesn't want to know what God wants he's he doesn't hear from God and he, he used to depend on Samuel so much so so Saul goes to a a medium a spiritual medium and wants to get in contact with Samuel the prophet but the only problem is Samuel's dead. And so he goes to this spiritual medium and he says, would you perform a seance? Would you, would you call Samuel from the dead and speak to me so I know what's going on? And, you know, during the land of Israel, they weren't allowed to do this. It was forbidden. And so the story happens in 1 Samuel 28, verse 11. It says, then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up? Because Saul says, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen to you. And he was hiding the fact that he was actually Saul the king. And so he goes to this lady, to this spiritual medium, says, and she asks him, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, Saul said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said, Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And here's what it says. The woman says, I see a God coming up from out of the earth. Well, obviously, Samuel is not God. But she says, I see an Elohim. 
I see a spiritual entity. I see a ghost. I see his divine image. I see his spiritual image. I see a ghost. I see an Elohim. And so this is why the context of the story helps us understand how we translate Elohim. And some Bibles even translate it, says, I seen a God come up, but it's a small G, not a capital G. The point that I'm trying to express is this, is that Elohim is sometimes used as, in, a, in the context, is used to describe other things. And so in the case of Saul and Samuel, we know that Samuel's not a God, he's dead, but God allows his ghost to come up and speak to Saul. Now for the record, this is, this is a pretty crazy story. You start looking at the Bible like, where was that found? This is crazy. It, the Bible's a very interesting book. You've just got to stop and look at the details. God allows, for some reason, God allows this medium, this, this spiritual medium to call up Samuel, and Samuel comes up. But in today's terms, this wasn't a true seance, because a true seance, they call up spirits from the dead, but it's usually demonic, and the, the medium is possessed by the spirit. And the spirit then speaks to those that are looking for answers. It's a very evil and wicked thing. And that's why God looks at it as deplorable. And so the spirit would possess the medium. But here God didn't allow that. God actually allowed Samuel to come up from the earth and to speak to Saul. Let's go back to the garden. The Bible says that now the man has become like one of us. God is not speaking to himself the Bible's letting us know that just like the Lord and just like the heavenly hosts that surround him, the other Elohims, the other spiritual beings, and we would understand them as angels or spirits, we would understand them as the heavenly host, God says that man has now become like one of us. The full weight, and this is what it means, that mankind now knows the full weight of knowing good and evil now I don't believe that God is over a pantheon of gods a pantheon of gods is like you know you got all these little gods like the god of the sun and the god of the moon and the god of lettuce and the god of organic apples I know those things are evil I talked about last week right the god of all these different I don't believe that God is a god that has anyone considered to be as we would understand as a god especially a God that is desired to be worshipped. Matter of fact, there were gods in the Old Testament that did try to raise themselves up to the level of God. And God says, no, you are not me, and you will die like human beings. Just read Psalm 82. It explains this. So there is, there's, it's a fascinating thing, but we know that God is surrounded by angels. We know that God is surrounded by spiritual beings. And so God says, now... Because they've chosen to disobey and do something I forbid, now they have become like one of us, meaning that they now know the full weight of knowing good and evil. And with that choice comes the reality of the consequences. Because, see, Satan came to Eve and said, did God really say? He knows that if you eat this fruit, that you will be like God. And I want to tell you, that Satan was half right. Because what's the first thing God says? He'd become like one of us. 
See, Satan will always tell you the half the truth. He'll never tell you the whole truth. He'll always tell you half of the truth in order to make it seem good, in order to make it palatable. I was listening to a podcast, and I sent it to my wife, and, and um, she was confused why I sent this to her because it sounded really good, but there was something off about it, and she knew there's something off about this. It sounded really good, and what it was was a guy who was so into the new age speaking to someone who was a good Christian, except the Christian wasn't aware of it because the new guy who was in, in the new age into the occult was saying terms that he liked. He would say things like the Holy Spirit. He would say things like, you know, a divine plan. He would say things just enough, and he would even quote Scripture just enough, but he wasn't telling him the whole truth. He wasn't telling him that he believes in reincarnation. He believes in karma. He believes that we, we will be reincarnated in other beings. He wasn't telling him that, that he believes that he has a divine light inside of him and he himself is a God. But he told him just enough so that this Christian would listen and say, oh, cool. See, Satan always tells us half the story. And he says, you know what, you're going to be like God. And in a sense, Satan was right. Because that's the first thing God says. They have become like one of us. But Satan didn't say was that he would be, Satan didn't tell them that they wouldn't actually be God, but they would simply know the full weight of good and evil. We also need to understand that there is a consequence to not listening to God and what he speaks. There is a consequence of not holding to what the word tells us. And the Bible says that the wages, Proverbs 10, the wages of the righteous, meaning what you earn for being righteous, what you earn for doing good, for doing what God says is life. But the earnings of the wicked is sin and death. Satan will only tell you half the truth, and he'll only give you enough information without giving you the full story. And the danger is not using wisdom to guide you. And this is what I believe this whole story about the Garden of Eden is about. It really is about wisdom. Because if you reject wisdom, if you reject God's wisdom, you set yourself up for sin and death. Satan will always try to get you to submit to a moment. Satan will always try to get you to believe half the truth. And he does this in Christians all the time. You aren't really loved by God. God really doesn't care for you. God isn't really concerned. God only, he'll only forgive you, but you got to earn his forgiveness. He'll tell you the things to break that relationship, but he'll never tell you the whole truth. And he'll never tell you the results of sin. A great example of this is in Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs chapter 7, there's this story of a young man who goes down this road to the wayward woman. And as he is going down this road, he falls into her trap. Proverbs 7 says that there's this woman. And she is, has seductive words. And at the window of my house, I looked down the lattice and I saw among the simple 
I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. A youth who had no experience. A youth that did not have wisdom. You see, Satan is like this woman. He will come with crafty intent. And that's actually what Proverbs says. That he comes with crafty intent. This young man goes down this road. And here's this woman and she starts smooth talking to him. Starts flattering him. Starts telling him, hey, my husband's gone. I desire you. I want you. Come with me. And this is why it's so important to use wisdom and to avoid the areas of sin in our life that are trying to corrupt us. This is what it says in Proverbs chapter 7. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as dark night was setting in. And then out came this woman dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. And the Bible says that little did he know that it would cost him his life. You see, Satan wants to always get us to believe half-truths. Satan wants us to get engaged in things that are not good for us. He wants us to eat from that tree of disobedience so that we would not understand the full weight of the choices that we make, but that we would listen to his lies and we would ruin the very thing that God desires for us, relationship, friendship, closeness. He'll tell you half-truth. He will tell you the things that you want to hear. He'll tell you the things that you desire. But we must use wisdom. And I'm going to bring this to a close because the next chapter in Proverbs tells us the beauty of wisdom. So how do we keep ourselves from like this young man? You know, and this young man wasn't just a young man on his own. He was a young man who hung out with other young men who lacked no sense. And that's why the Bible tells us in the New Testament, that bad company corrupts good morals. you got to make sure you know who you're hanging out with. If there are people that are immoral, you're going to become immoral like them. If you're hanging around people that have become bitter and, and unforgiving, you're going to become bitter and unforgiving. Why? Because it reproduces itself. You hang out with people of faith, you're going to start speaking like people of faith. You start hanging out with people who believe and are thankful in their heart, you're going to start to be thankful in your heart. Why? Because these are learned behaviors that we have. That's why bad company corrupts good moral. This young man hung out with people that weren't helping him, people that weren't giving him wisdom. Proverbs 8 says this, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice at the highest point along the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand. Wisdom takes her stand. Besides the gate leading to the city at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. Just like that young man. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your heart on it, on wisdom. The Bible tells us that we need to hold on to wisdom. Because wisdom gives us the understanding of right and wrong. What Adam and Eve did when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was they understood the full weight of disobedience. They knew that God said, don't do it. But they didn't know the full weight of it. 
They didn't know how much it was going to cost them. They didn't know that they were going to lose their relationship with God and the place that he created for them to dwell with him. They lost it all. Wisdom is calling out. And we know this, that wisdom was there in the garden. Because in Proverbs 8.22 it says, The Lord brought me forth. The Lord brought wisdom forth at his first works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ago, ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came into being. God has always offered us wisdom. God has always offered us from the very beginning of creation. God has always offered us wisdom. And we know in verse chapter 2, verse 6 of Proverbs, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. He guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful one. God, from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, always has offered wisdom. He's given it to us. And he gives it to us through choice. You either can choose to eat from the tree of life or you can choose to eat from the knowledge of good and evil. If you choose to eat from the tree of life, that's wisdom, that's obedience, that's doing what I want. But if you choose to do the other thing, there is a weight, a full weight of consequences that you are not aware of. But if you choose to disobey, then you will become like one of us and you will know the full weight of judgment that I have. Just bringing this to a close this morning, how does, how does this apply to us? Because I think that all of us have two trees in the middle of our garden. All of us have two trees. We can either choose to obey God or we could choose not to. We could choose to obey God and continue to enjoy life with Him or we could choose to disobey what God has asked. And as a result, it will cost us everything. Sin isn't quickly revealed in our life. You know, if Satan came up to you, he decided to pay you a visit this afternoon, he says, hey, I want you to follow me and I promise you will suffer forever in hell of eternity, suffering and dying with me every day. How does that sound? You would say, Get thee out of thy house. Get away from me. That's stupid. Why would I do that? I love God. He's so good to me. He doesn't come at us that way. He comes at us by telling us half-truths. You know, this thing that you're doing, it's not that bad. This thing that you're watching, not that bad. This thing that you, the unforgiveness that you have in your heart, you have the right to do that. That's okay. He always gives us with a little seed. And the book of James tells us this, that if we allow those seeds to manifest, that eventually they will give birth to sin, and sin will give birth to death. Now, I believe in the forgiveness of God, and I believe that the blood of Jesus covers over all of it. That when I make a mistake, when you make a mistake, we come to the Lord and we ask Him for forgiveness and He forgives us. And the Bible says that when He forgives us, He restores us. That there is no more unrighteousness. There's no more sin. There's no more guilt. There's no more blame. That we stand before the Lord, innocent, pure, blameless before Him. And I believe it with my whole heart. I believe that when he takes my sin, he casts them as far as the east is from the west and he recalls them not and he doesn't hold those things against me. He, I don't walk into his presence and say, oh, there's my boy Pete, but I remember. 
No, he says, there's my boy Pete. There's the one that my son died for. And now he has the right to be with me. Come on, Pete. Come on, let's spend some time together. Or you can choose from the other tree that slowly corrodes and eats away at your spiritual life. I'm not trying to nitpick in your life. The Holy Spirit is trying to nitpick in your life. Because there are things that we sometimes allow to give birth in our hearts that are not of God. Unforgiveness, bitterness, lust, greed, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, if we let those things manifest, eventually they may cost us everything. We just don't know it. You have an opportunity. You have two trees in your life of obedience, following wisdom, or lacking wisdom. But the Bible tells us that if we hold on to wisdom, that he holds success in his hands, that he will be with us every step of the way until we see Jesus again. Or you can live without wisdom. Play the gamble of your life, and it could cost you everything. So let's be people who use wisdom. Let's be people who continue to pursue the Lord. Amen? Amen.